0: You're listening to Trevaux, The Current State. I'm your host, Kayleen Kosla, and today I'll be speaking with Trevaux contributor, HIAP Nguyen. This week, we'll be discussing the important policy implications that have occurred in Scotland since the United Kingdom left the European Union. HIAP, can you start by telling us why Brexit is such a significant political and legal milestone For the devolved countries of the United Kingdom?
1: So in December, uh, the UK passed a Brexit deal uh, with the EU that completed its exit from both the European single market and the EU as a whole. The deal had some key ramifications for the unity uh, of the United Kingdom. Brexit has reignited discussions of Scottish independence in this May's upcoming Scottish Parliament elections, which Westminster sees as an urgent threat to the Union.
0: Let's turn to Scotland. In 2014, Scotland held an independence referendum where voters rejected leaving the UK by 55%. Now, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is pledging to reintroduce a second referendum should her party win back a majority in the Scottish Parliament in this May's upcoming elections. Why is that so?
1: One of the most uh, important arguments citizens on the Remain side advanced uh, was that by remaining part of the UK, Scotland could stay within the European Union. Had Scotland chosen to leave in 2014, it would likely have lost access to the EU's single market, which would have raised tariffs on Scottish businesses and left its citizens without automatic access to jobs and healthcare in the rest of the EU. This would have likely caused a recession the moment Scotland officially became independent, it might have also resulted in an exodus of businesses from major population centers such as Glasgow and Edinburgh, and would have also prevented Scottish citizens from working in other EU countries and getting free health treatment in European hospitals. But now that Britain has left the European Union, one of the Remain side's most prominent arguments fails to hold up. Staying in the United Kingdom no longer means staying in the European Union. In fact, if Scotland leaves, it is much more likely to be able to gain EU membership within a decade as it can just accede to the EU through the general admission process that Eastern European nations like Croatia have undergone. However, if Scotland stays, chances of the UK ever rejoining the EU, and for that matter the EU even allowing the UK to come back, would be far slimmer.
0: Recent January 2021 polling from the Sunday Times shows that Scots will likely be relatively split should a new referendum be held with 49% polling in favour and 44% polling opposed. What are some arguments that Remainers now have for keeping Scotland within the UK post-Brexit?
1: I think that many of the same key Remain arguments from 2014 still stand. For example, independence would force Scotland to forego use of the pound sterling, one of the strongest reserve currencies in the world, and consequently to adopt a brand new currency that could be devalued by investors immediately. Owing to its longevity, the British pound does not suffer from this same devaluation threat, because it has a plethora of investors and is kept in governments across the world as a reserve currency. The UK government would also have less need to devalue its currency, to lower export costs, or spend to invigorate the economy through a loose monetary policy, both of which a newly independent Scottish government may see a need to do. Another persuasive reason to remain is that an exit from the UK's single market could dramatically increase costs for consumers and businesses by an order trade modelers at the London School of Economics calculate to be two to three times larger than that of the United Kingdom, leaving the EU. According to the Centre for Economic Performance, the rest of the UK outside of Scotland accounted for 67% of Scotland's imports and 61% of its exports in 2017. Additionally, the Financial Times reports that, in order to compensate for a loss of its share of UK public spending money, Scotland would likely have to raise taxes to be able to fund public expenditures, such as pensions, healthcare, and unemployment benefits. Finally, Scotland would lose access to every trade deal that the UK has struck with the EU and the US since Brexit. As a result, Scotland would have to renegotiate all of those trade deals. On top with the necessary tasks any newly independent country already faces of setting up foreign ministries and world embassies, applying for UN admission, and eventually acceding to the EU over the course of a decade.
0: Now, here, the economic and consumer welfare reasons for remaining are compelling, but are there any non-economic benefits?
1: There are relatively few cultural benefits that Scotland doesn't already have under its current set of devolved powers, which are relatively expansive. Scots can already set their own national anthem, create their own public holidays, and could probably compete as their own Olympic and sports teams should they pass bills or negotiate with Westminster to do so. From a legal perspective, being part of the UK affords the Scottish access to some of the best diplomats, broadcasting services, and universities in the world. Today, Scots benefit from the access of a U.K. passport and what it provides to almost every country on Earth with excellent consular protection and services wherever Scots may go. Scots have a fully funded and devolved BBC, a first rate public broadcaster which provides crucial weather, financial and cultural reports that rural and urban areas alike depend on. And Scottish students can attend British universities across any of the four U.K. countries without paying a dime in most cases, including in London, one of the world's financial capitals. Similarly, the influx of English, Welsh, and Northern Irish residents to study at Scottish universities infuses Scotland with new ideas, creativity, and talent. Many of these students end up staying in Scotland and contributing to the country's socio-economic fabric. This kind of collaboration in the education and job markets, derived from staying in the union, translates into untold capital, investments, and cultural diversity within Scotland over time.
0: You mentioned the many benefits citizens of Scotland experienced when the UK was still part of the EU, such as access to the common market and travel area, healthcare reciprocity, and the right to work anywhere within the EU. Surely the potential advantages of leaving the EU are to be taken seriously as well. And
1: in addition to the perks that you've already mentioned, Scotland would experience a wave of political benefits. Uh, for example, it would be free of the more conservative parliament in Westminster to implement more progressive employment, immigration, and foreign policies, three competencies that they currently don't have complete control over. And although Scotland has a lot of devolved power, the country could still gain more freedom in decision-making if it was on its own. An independent Holyrood, could completely denuclearize and force Westminster to take away its Trident missiles, institute more robust consumer protection policies, better tailor benefits and social services to their population, and even do away with the crown should more republican tendencies in Scotland prevail over time. If there are recessions affecting Europe, the Scots could even argue that having their own currency gives them more monetary policy flexibility to spend in times of crisis as opposed to the austerity that Tory-dominated Westminster notoriously favours.
0: Given the many pros and cons of a Scottish exit you've just laid out, what do you think are the chances that a second referendum will actually occur, and would it succeed?
1: I think that the passage of a second referendum will depend heavily on whether the SNP can gain a clear majority in this May's elections. If Nicola Sturgeon's party does win more than 50% of the seats, some sort of referendum will occur, and if her party doesn't, I would expect the Tories and Labour to scuttle any chances of that happening. Nationalists like Miss Sturgeon would see an SNP majority as a clear mandate for a second independence poll, as she and her party have made breaking away from the rest of the UK the core tenet of their manifesto. Unionists like the Conservatives and Labour are adamantly opposed to any sort of separation and have vowed to fight tooth and nail to keep Scotland in the UK. Both parties are open to and have promised even more devolution in return for keeping
0: Scotland in the Union. Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Conservative Party in the Scottish Parliament, earned the reputation of being a powerful opposition leader with a lot of gravitas. Scots really seemed to like her leadership style during her time at the helm of the Scottish Conservative Party from 2011 to 2019. Do you think that could translate into a Conservative victory in 2021, since she propelled the party to a second place finish last time?
1: Since Douglas Ross, the current leader of the Scottish Conservatives, is a member of the UK Parliament, Ms. Davidson still leads the Tories in the Scottish Parliament. But without Ms. Davidson's commanding presence at the top of her party, The Scottish Conservatives have fallen short in recent polls, all but guaranteeing some sort of an SNP win in May. Ms. Davidson is a charismatic and passionate speaker, famous for her well-researched and somewhat scathing responses and queries of Ms. Sturgeon uh, during First Minister's questions. She has held Ms. Sturgeon accountable in viral clips on NHS spending, road repairs, and coronavirus relief, all of which Ms. Davidson claims the SNP government is cutting short and refusing to provide a long-term plan for, since they seem so taken with independence. As the first openly gay person to lead a major Scottish party, she's also a moderate who shed the Tories' hardline image of austerity and cultural conservatism in Scotland, in favour of one that largely supported the UK welfare state, greater civil liberties, far more integration with the European Union, and a more inclusive Scottish society. She sold these policies in this rebranded conservative aura in vigorous door-to-door campaigning with Scottish voters in every election she ran. It was her break with conservatives in Westminster that ultimately led to her resignation. There were simply too many differences between her and the more conservative Boris Johnson. Although Douglas Ross does share Ms. Davidson's moderate and pro-EU worldview, he lacks Ms. Davidson's gravitas and fire in debates, and that may simply not be enough to win over Scottish voters in May.
0: If the SNP won a majority, would a referendum happen? Boris Johnson expressed his opposition to a referendum, irrespective of the SNP's representation. Can he stop the political and legal process of a Scottish exit from unfolding at the election stage, or after the election stage?
1: So, a country cannot leave the United Kingdom without the assent of the Crown through Parliament. I expect that in that case, a referendum sanctioned by Hollywood, but not Westminster, would still happen. However, Mr. Johnson would block Parliament from even considering the outcome of the vote as long as the Tories remain in power. I don't see the Labour opposition leader, Keir Starmer, as deviating from that position. Both the Tories and Labour in Westminster see the original referendum result in 2014. It's a settled deal for a generation, but a Scottish elite vote, especially in the case of a high turnout, would be seen as a watershed moment in Scottish politics, regardless.
0: It definitely would be. I imagine it would give Miss Sturgeon and the SNP a moral upper hand for a generation. Could you ever foresee a situation similar to that of Catalonia and Spain, where Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy imposed direct rule after the Catalans unilaterally declared independence?
1: So that's very difficult for me to imagine happening in Scotland. Just the scene of British troops descending on Edinburgh would be extraordinary. While the UK has been heavy-handed in the past with regards to breakaway regions, like in the 1980s, where Margaret Thatcher bolstered the number of troops sent into Northern Ireland as peacekeepers, I don't think Nicholas Sturgeon or Boris Johnson would ever allow it to reach that point in the post-Cold War era where these kinds of conflicts are usually frowned upon. I fully expect cooler heads to prevail.
0: And that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Veronica Bognat and the members of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travot at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insights, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice, does not reflect the views of the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and may not be current.